And it just blew me away that I knew how to negotiate rent and salaries and all this stuff. But this like world of insurance, like I just didn't know anything about it all year. So nobody would tell me anything how it's going. And then they would show up and give me this increase. But I'm like, there had to be a better way. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for this show and the CPA myself. Well, for today's episode, we have another unique guest. Steve Watson from the Phoenix, Arizona area joined us for the program, and he holds both a CPA certification and a Senior Certified Professional designation from SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Managers. On top of that, Steve's now using that combined knowledge base to help other financial and business professionals learn what they don't know or what the brokers may not tell them about practical ways to save on health insurance. It's quite a passion for Steve, and you'll definitely hear that in his voice. We're going to start with the beginning of his career journey, of course, though, because I think it's important to hear how his career took that direction. But make sure you listen all the way till the end of the interview, though, because that way you'll get an idea of how Steve is able to mix the two backgrounds, both his accounting experience and his HR knowledge. If you do enjoy and learn something unique in this episode, please share it out on social media. We love it when we gain new listeners. And of course, it helps others learn a little something as well. I know it takes a little extra effort, but if you can find just an extra one or two minutes to help others find us, we really do appreciate it. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Steve Watson. Hello, Steve. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Wonderful. Well, for the audience, we have Steve Watson on the program today. Steve's in the Phoenix area, and a couple of things about his background were intriguing to me, so I wanted to bring him on the show. We're going to delve deeper into this, of course, but Steve not only has his CPA certification, but he also holds a Senior Certified Professional Certification in Human Resources, and frankly, we don't see that too often. Plus, he's had a very successful career path in accounting, you know, moving up to the executive level. And now he's using some of that combined accounting and HR experience to benefit other businesses as well. So this is going to be a quite a learning experience, actually, for all of us. Before we get into everything that you've got going on now, though, Steve, I think it's important that the audience understands how you got to where you are today. What led you to consider accounting as a possible career choice in the first place? The interesting part about it is from a very early age, I knew that this, I wanted to go into business. And so my dad was an accountant at a, at, we had a lot of turkey farms around where I grew up in rural Utah. And he was the accountant at the processing plant and moved up to his way to controller. And you know, I just always wanted to be like my dad and follow him. But even in middle school and high school, I remember taking all the business classes that I could find, taking accounting. I was part of FBLA and went to all their competitions there. And so I always liked math. I always liked business. I didn't really know why other than the fact that I liked seeing how businesses operated. I was always fascinated with why some businesses did well, why some businesses didn't do well, and and figured the fastest way I could get to know that is through the numbers through accounting. Interesting. Okay. Okay. My father was an accountant as well. That's how I ended up. (laughs) This is probably a little bit of a tangent, but you're not the first person to mention FBLA on this show. Apparently, they do a lot of good work to get people into accounting. So <laughs> I loved it. It was a big part of my high school. I remember in Utah, they have a scholarship for 
people in the different different areas until I got the business one for my school and went competed in our region and won the regional one. But I remember going to a state competition, so we even got to participate in a national one and just a variety of different businesses things. You know, it was accounting and communications and speech and different things, typing, but really enjoyed it. I was their chapter president for my high school when I was there. Oh wow, you were really involved. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so when you went to college, were you an accounting major from day one, or was that a decision you made later on? I always wanted to do finance, and I remember when I was a freshman, and I always wanted to get my MBA. It was something I always was in my career path. I was going to get my MBA, and, and people told me, they said, look, if you're going to get your MBA, you should really try a different path for your bachelor's. You know, go get a chemical engineering degree or something else so you can put it together with business. And so I looked around at different things. At the time, I was thinking about doing consulting work. But nothing really intrigued me enough more than, than like finance and business. And so I ended up just sticking with business. And that's what I graduated. And at the end, they had you specialize. And so I picked international finance just because I felt like all companies were going global and wanted to, to learn more about the international side of things. So that's what I ended up graduating in. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So how did you get your first professional job out of college? So I graduated from BYU, got married right after we got graduated. We moved to Michigan, and my wife had a job there. And I was looking around. I was got connected with Account Temps, and so I always joked that I was Bob from Account Temps because I was going around a different. <laughs> if you remember that old commercial, I don't know if they're still doing that Bob from Account Temps, but did that for a few months over the summer while I was trying to find a job and worked at Pulte Homes for a couple months. And then there was this this small little garage door distribution center out near the edge of Detroit that needed an accountant for a few weeks. It was more like an accounts payable clerk. And I went out there and found out that they'd recently been bought out by a publicly traded company called Clopay. They were starting to consolidate all of their accounting functions to their corporate offices in Cincinnati. And they, you know, the accounts payable person saw the writing on the wall, so she left, and so I was replacing her. And then the accountant that was there, he left within two weeks because he knew his job was kind of not going to be there long term. And so they looked at me and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. They just offered, they weren't ready to consolidate right then. They needed a, you know, six months to a year. I was already there. They liked me. And so they offered me, me the job. And so I became kind of the accountant, accounts payable, kind of everything wrapped into one. Okay. Okay. I was curious about that because I saw that Clopay company and then, and it looks like they eventually moved you to Brazil, maybe? Yeah. So, so Clope is a, most people don't know that name, but if you buy a garage door from Home Depot, they're the ones that make those garage doors that Home Depot sells. They also have a plastics division that makes plastic rolls of film for Procter & Gamble and Kimberly Clark to turn them into diapers. And so that's kind of their main business model. So we were just, a, again, a small distribution company for them up in Michigan after a year they said they would. They were going to consolidate their accounting team, and they had a an analyst position open up in Cincinnati. And so I took that job right when they consolidated the accounting into the corporate offices. So that's kind of how I got to Cincinnati. Did that for about a year, and then they had this again sister company that did plastics that had a division down in Brazil. So they'd had a joint venture down there for three years. They had a, an American down there representing the joint venture, and I had served a an LDS mission for my church down there. So I already spoke Portuguese. I'd already lived in Brazil for a couple of years, spoke the language. I was only out of school for a few years and I was interested long-term in that job. Like I really wanted to, to go down to Brazil and work there. But again, I was just an analyst in my company. That was a director position. So on the salary range, it was 10 steps up higher. 
And I tried to apply for a similar type position, an analyst position in that sister company, and they denied me. They said I wasn't qualified enough for it, that you were working for somebody else. And so I ended up applying for Ohio State. I was going to go get my MBA right then. I was going to leave the company. I went and told the company that I was leaving in the fall. I got accepted. And then the, my boss's boss came back to me and said, actually, we were looking for you to go to Brazil when that, to replace that guy that's down there. Nobody told me that, right? They just <laughs> kind of planned, but nobody had told me about it. And I was throwing a wrench into it because now I was going to leave the company. And I said, look, if that's what you can do, you're going to have to interview right now because I, have, I need to either take this job or go to school. And next time the, the Brazilian guys were up in town, they interviewed me. They decided that I was still kind of young, but they were willing to, if I was willing to go down there a year before and train with the guy down there, they were willing to offer me a position. And so I had this, this choice, like, do I go get the MBA and hope for this job later or do I just take the job now and go get the MBA after that? And again, being a 19, 20-year-old missionary down there is very different than moving your wife. And my wife was pregnant at the time down to Sao Paulo. And so it became this, you know, we discussed it and talked about it, decided that we, we wanted to take the opportunity. And so I ended up taking that job down there. So it was a $50 million division down there. I ended up being the director of finance for the next five years. Five years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I can tell a lot of stories about that. (laughs) I I bet. Yeah. That's that's a whole other episode. (laughs) What did you enjoy most about that time? I'm just curious. I skyrocketed my career. I mean, I was learning things. I'd heard about deferred taxes, but now I was actually doing them. And I didn't really quite know why I was doing them that way, but I was having to do them. And it was different because the way our company was set up, if you were a divisional controller in the States at a manufacturing company, like you handled inventory and the P&L, but you didn't really have to deal with all the other balance sheet things. But because I was in an international company where it just got consolidated up, I had to handle all the balance sheets. And so I had to do all of the AR, I had to do all the taxes, I had to do deferred taxes. There were three companies within Brazil we had to consolidate up. And again, I was only two years out of school with a finance degree. I didn't have an accounting degree. I'd never been an auditor. I didn't have my CPA. I was just kind of thrown into the fire and having to learn this. And so having to call people and talk through it and try and, I don't know, I jumped really fast in learning, made a lot of mistakes, but figured it out. I was working in two different languages, two different currencies, two different accounting standards for those five years. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I look back, I'm like, what were they thinking? I was like this 26-year-old kid, and they sent me down there as director of finance. Are you crazy? Like, what? Like, but I spoke the language, and they trusted me down there. And they so, again, now that I'm 15 years past that, I'm like, wow, they were brave. <laughs> I can relate. I had a management job in my 20s, too. And, of course, at that time, I thought, well, of course I'm ready. And now I look back, and I'm thinking, they were fools to put me in that position. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, right when we got there, they were a joint venture. They bought out the remaining part of the joint venture. They were building a new factory about an hour outside of town. And I mean, if you've lived in, I mean, you live in San Antonio, like a bigger city. If you're going to move an hour outside of San Antonio, most people don't want to move to the rural part of there. They're either city people or not city people, right? And so what happened, I was six months down there. I knew they were building this factory outside of Sao Paulo, but all of my staff didn't want to move. And so within six months, I lost all of my staff and we were building a factory. So not only we had the day-to-day operations, keep the business going, we were building a factory, importing machines, like doing all this stuff, like setting up this kind of new operations and then with new staff. And I remember right about that time, my wife coming to me and saying, look, I didn't move to Brazil to be a single mom. And it was just kind of everything all hit at this peak. And I knew that things were going to get better as soon as the factory gets up and running, as soon as I get my new staff hired, it's like things are going to calm down. But there's just some of those peaks in your career, right? Where you just, it all peaks and you just got to get through them and life will get better. But at the time it was hard. Wow. 
I'm curious, how did that end up ending? Because obviously you came back to the U.S. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so they originally sent me down. The original assignment was three years, but they mm-hmm. asked me to do one more year to kind of have that year of training down there that overlapped. And so it was going to be four. We loved it down there. I mean, my wife ended up mm-hmm. learning Portuguese. Some of our best friends still live down there. We go down there for weddings and funerals and big life events and just two of my kids were born in Brazil like it's just becomes a big part of our family and who we are is that that country so we ended up staying another year my oldest was turning five and the schools in the rural part where we were weren't very good and we weren't willing to kind of move back to the city and then commute back and forth and so we decided that it was it was time for us to move back I could have stayed there they would have left me down there but we decided it was just next phase of life and it was just ended up being a bad year because it was 2009 so everything Uh was shutting down the united states and my wife was from michigan from midwest and i was from the west and so we decided that the the midwest was probably not the best place to go with all the car companies shutting down and everything happening in that recession and i don't know some of the ironic parts of life but my wife had a blog and she wrote about postpartum depression that she had with our third child and there was this person in Arizona that was following her, really liked her blog, showed it to her her husband who owned a counseling clinic, and he really liked it and asked her to start writing for the counseling clinic about postpartum depression and just turned into this conversation about why are you in Brazil and what are you doing and what does your husband do and said that I was a CFO and he had started this counseling clinic. It was rapidly growing and they were at the point where they were needing a CFO and it just turned into this conversation and ended up flying up to Arizona. Didn't know anybody in Arizona, didn't have any connections to Arizona, but figured it was in the West and getting close to my family and liked the company and they ended up making me an offer to be their CFO. So I told my wife she could blog anytime. That's how I got from Brazil to, to Phoenix and that was... You know, over 10 years ago. Wow. Okay. I work in employment. And that's the first time I've heard that one. Or, you haven't heard it through blogs, life. right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was different. I mean, I remember flying. It was a big transition for me. Again, I went from a publicly traded company, international division with all these different currencies and accounting standards to a small privately held company with 200 employees that was just based in Arizona that had no inventory. I mean, from an accounting standpoint, it went from very complex to very simple, right? I just had staff, I had payroll, had some reports to do, but there was not, it wasn't very complex. Didn't have all the stock standards and all the stuff I had to deal with, but it was refreshing at the same time for me. When you're in those publicly traded companies and you see all these reports and all these variance reports and stuff that you're doing, sometimes you forget you're just trying to run a business. And that's what was refreshing about coming to a small company. And it wasn't so much about, did I hit budget or do this stuff? It's like, how are we doing? Are we getting better? Are we going to make long-term investments? Like, what do we need to move the business forward? And I really enjoyed that aspect of working for a privately held company. And I just don't think I'll be able to move back into those huge, big bureaucratic companies anymore. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a refreshing change. That's me personally. I mean, I know that people fit differently, but for me personally, I fit better with a smaller company. Okay. So is that child and family support services that you're talking about? Okay. I figured that was nonprofit or government agency or something in Arizona. I did. Yeah, it's actually a privately held company. We have funding through, through Medicaid and through the state. And so a lot of our peers, all of our kind of, I guess you'd say competitors are nonprofits, but but we're not. We're a privately held company just trying to do okay. some good work. So we, we've grown. But again, compared to the public trade company, we're still really small, but we have about 500 employees right now. Okay. 
Okay. Well, now I'm starting to see why you would have finance and HR responsibilities, I guess. Exactly, right. <laughs> yeah, so I was, so that, that piece of it, about a year into my, my tenure, the HR director left the company and they looked at me and they liked how I operated and who I was. And they kind of said, well, can you take this on on an interim basis? And like, well, you know, HR finance is about the same thing. And I was like, I don't know in what world HR and finance are the same thing. But to them, it was, it was administrative stuff. I took it on. I'm a person that if you're going to give me something, I'm going to dive into it. And so I started attending the national HR conferences, started wanting to learn more. And I was like, well, if I'm going to learn more, I might as well get certified through that. And so I was, I was working on my CPA at the same time. I'd finished my MBA, or actually I was doing my MBA at the same time. So I was kind of doing three at the same time. So it's like MBA, CPA, and HR certification. I kind of went through that phase of getting them all. Wow. Most people have difficulty getting through just the CPA exam and working full time. You know, I mean, I think it's rough. It's definitely a sacrifice. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for me, it was more of, I felt like it was an insurance policy to me. Like going and getting my MBA and my CPA wasn't going to get me a different job. Like I still, I already had the CFO job and I wasn't planning on going somewhere else, but I felt like if I lost my job or if I wanted to go somewhere else, that most people, I mean, everybody already assumed I had my CPA, that I already had my MBA because I was a CFO and I didn't. And it's like, it almost did it backwards. And so that was part of when I took the job that they would kind of help me get my MBA. So I ended up getting my MBA with ASU. Loved that program. Really, really enjoyed going through their executive program and learned almost as much from my peers going through that program as I did from the professors there. And yeah, then I started working on my CPA. It was funny because after I'd finished my MBA, I thought I had enough accounting credits, but I was looking at the wrong standard. I was looking like if you were coming from one state to another state and I had to have like 36 hours, I think of higher level accounting. I'd only taken two accounting classes in my bachelor and I'd only taken two of them, two or three in my master's program. And so I had to go back and take like a 200, 300 level account. I had to go take eight classes. This is 10 years into my career after I'd been, you know, this international director and stuff. And I'm going back and taking accounting 300 and accounting 400 and a little frustrated with that piece, but I just had to do it. And that was probably the piece of the CPI was the most annoyed about that I couldn't just kind of prove that I'd done this. That I had to actually go get these credits. Okay. I didn't realize you got your CPA certification later in life. So I hadn't planned on asking you this, but since you did, since I know that now, do you have any thoughts or advice for individuals looking to get it a little later in life? You know, they've been out of school for a while. Maybe their study habits aren't quite the same <laughs> anymore. It's hard. It really was hard. I mean, I was studying a ton and taking, you know, doing the exams and stuff. It's been a life goal of mine, you know, ever since I was in high school to get my MBA and my CPA. And so part of it was personally, like, I just wanted to, to check that box in my life that got me to finish it. The other thing, and we'll probably move into this a little bit, and maybe I'll bring it up right now, but when I was doing my MBA, so again, I got back from Brazil, I was working at Child and Family Support Services as a CFO, I was doing my MBA, and while I was in that MBA, I had a finance class, a finance group, and there was an ENT doctor that was doing the MBA with me, and he was in my finance group, and he was seeing all the stuff that I was doing for that class, you know, the spreadsheets we were building and the modeling we were doing, and he started his practice, and it was about a $2 million practice, and he looked at me and says, man, I really need somebody like you to help me. You know, I'm trying to, like, build my business, see the value of having a CFO, but I'm just small. I can't go out and pay for somebody right now. Would you help me? And I'm thinking like, you know, I don't have time in the day. Like, how am I going to do this? And he's like, no, no, you don't need to like be there all the time, but just, you know, let's meet two or three times a month. You could just oversee it. Just give me insight. And so that was the beginning. You'll see on my LinkedIn thing about Summit Path Group. And so that's what that consulting company is, is I, I started 
consulting with him. So I just set up a retainer fee with them that I would work with them. And I did it for three years. And I helped him out on the HR side as well as the finance side. And I just fell into this niche of companies that are big enough that they need help. And so I, I find that small companies, they first start out, they do their own accounting, and then they get a little bit bigger, and then they hire their sister or their brother or their neighbor to kind of help them do the data entry. And they have a tax person helping them. They get big enough that they need kind of the CFO help, but they're small enough they can't hire somebody full time. And so I stepped in kind of that fractional CFO work and did it for him and, and did it for three years and really enjoyed it. And then he got big enough that he wanted to hire somebody full time. And so I went and I helped him interview somebody and you know, hired that person for him and didn't think I was going to do it again. And then right after that, I had another company come out and it was a nonprofit here in, in Phoenix that wanted help and did that for another three or four years and just started opening up my brain to like this consulting work and so started adding some more clients there but it was always just a side thing i had my main job and then i did this on on the side for some of that group yeah i was curious what summit was and how you got into that okay okay that makes sense wow you stay busy for sure <laughs> I, I stay busy yeah so tell us about trend breakers because that seems to be the most recent endeavor what, yeah, so what trend breakers what happened with trend breakers was as i was building up my accounting consulting work. One of the things, again, because I wear the two, I'll start with my day job. One of the two things about my day job is, you know, like on the finance and the HR side, but once a year I have to work on health benefits for my employees. And so there's this $3 million contract negotiation that goes on once a year. And I had one year that there was a 30% increase. And it just blew me away that I knew how to negotiate rent and salaries and all this stuff. But this like world of insurance, like I just didn't know anything about it all year. You know, nobody tell me anything how it's going. And then they would show up and give me this increase. But I'm like, there had to be a better way. And so I started diving into that world more and learning about it and finding different ways to lower costs, started implementing different solutions and ended up saving a half a million dollars for my company. Got really excited about it. But we don't talk that much about with our peers about it. Like we just do our own thing with our own brokers, but we don't get out and like kind of talk to other employers about it. And I just started thinking about how there's no Yelp reviews. There's no Amazon reviews for brokers out there. There's no trusted resources that CFOs can learn about this, this area. Like we just trust these brokers to come in and give us the best advice. And honestly, a lot of times they're not giving us really good advice. And right about that same time, again, because I'm doing this consulting work on the side, there was a broker in my area that was starting up his own business, and he came to me and asked for help to be his CFO. And so I went there doing consulting work, again, as a CFO, setting everything up, and I got a peek behind the veil, and I learned all this stuff that happened on the back end, all these bonuses and commissions and incentives where it may be really good for a broker to present two or three plans to you, but there are other two or three plans that may be best for the employer. And which ones do they end up presenting to you? It's the ones that are good for them and not, not so much for you. And I thought, well, if employers knew about this, if they became more educated about it, I think they would make better decisions. And so I decided to form a company called Trendbreakers with the intent of not to sell insurance, but more to educate and to bring employers together from around the country to talk about it and to share ideas and to replicate. I'd love to just have other employers replicate exactly what I've done so they could save money. And I want to go learn what other ones are doing so I could save at my company. So that's what Trendbreakers is. Okay. Okay. So I guess, how do you bring employers together? I have a LinkedIn group that I can connect with. I have a Facebook group when we get in and we chat together and talk about different ideas. It's one of the reasons I hop on podcasts to kind of talk about and share ideas. And so I bring resources together into these, these forums. And then I also consult with companies one-on-one -on -one where they want me to kind of help reshape their plan and work on it with them. 
again, not as a broker. Some people get me confused. They say, well, you're a broker and sell insurance. I'm like, no, I'm more like if you're going to go buy a car and you didn't know anything about cars, I would be that friend that you'd take along with you to help you know where's the best place to shop and whether another person's trying to give you a bad deal or not. And so that's the consulting work that I do. Okay. Is it a membership peer group nope. kind of model or what do you? No, nope. no. Nope. I mean, it's all free. It's just groups that I can get in. And the only thing that I require is that they are an employer. Like I don't have brokers. I don't have vendors in there. I don't have other people inside that group. They have to be the key decision makers of their company and just willing to share and learn and be there. So Okay. I'm curious, do you find that most of the savings comes from better selection of products or is a piece of it trying to change employee behavior? In other words, you know, trying to influence, you know, the amount your employees exercise and stuff like that through point programs. And <laughs> I've had most of my savings come from stuff that doesn't impact employees at all. And so stuff that's done on the back end. And so my employees have no idea that things are changing on the back end. But I'll just give you a, kind of a simple example. And it's just a very, very small one. But last year I had really bad allergies. And so I go to my doctor. The doctor's like, you need to go to the pharmacy and get these allergy drops. And so I have you know, my Blue Cross Blue Shield car and I go to the pharmacist. And he first looks at me and says, oh, these are kind of expensive. I'm like, that's not a good sign. And he's like, they're $235. I'm like, well, I got my insurance card, so I, I shouldn't have to worry about that. And I'm like, well, what's the insurance price? And so it's $231. And I remember stopping like, wow, good job. Big insurance company saved me four bucks off of the, the allergy drops. And I was about ready to walk away because I'm like, look, my eyes are red, but maybe not that red. And I remember that I had this app on my phone called GoodRx. I don't know if you've heard of GoodRx. But yeah. if you haven't or any of the listeners, it's just an app that pulls in all the cash prices of pharmacy. And you don't have to put any information. You don't have to pay for it. You just look up. So I looked up the same prescription at the exact same pharmacy. It was 75 bucks. It was $150 cheaper if I would use GoodRx. And then it showed me if I drove three miles away, it was 20 bucks. So I went all the way from $230, $231, all the way down to 20 bucks for the same care, the same quality. And actually I ended up getting better care because I ended up getting the drops to help my eyes versus walking away and not, not getting them. And so I say all that because that's one person, one transaction over an entire year. And so if you add that up over all of your employees, over all of their transactions, there's so much money out there to save, but you have to find people that are willing to show those to you. So a broker is not going to make money off of showing me good RX because a lot of them get paid commissions and they honestly, they get paid more when the premiums go up. So there's this incentive for them to kind of keep the status quo plans. But as employers and as consumers of this, there are many ways for us to save money. And so if we start incorporating those types of programs into our health benefit package. So it could be pharmacy. It could be where we, what, the, the doctors, it could be the hospitals. And you start adding those all up, and I could get way into this, but you start adding those up, you can save a lot of money, and then you have to set up a type of plan where you're able to keep those savings instead of it, those savings just going to the insurance company, and that's a key component of it. But I would say that the most important thing for employers to know is that they're out there. These are not new plans, and there are tons of employers like me that are already doing them. And so as they get connected and they learn about these plans and find the people to help them implement those plans, they can re get the same type of savings. And that's what I really enjoy about Trainbreakers. I get really excited about it because I think it helps recruit and retain employees. That's the HR side of me. And then the finance side of me to take that money and reinvest it back into the company and back into wages. And honestly, insurance carriers have enough money. So I don't care if they're, they're losing money. So Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I'm curious. I've seen a lot more in the marketplace about the health sharing plans. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on those solutions? Or So health sharing plans are really good for small employers. And so there's, I'd say, threshold. So if you have less than 50 employees or less 
I'd probably say looking at health sharing plans or if you're just an individual out there. And basically what it is, is you cover the first whatever $500 of that procedure, whatever it is, and then it goes into the sharing bucket where y'all share. And I've actually seen employees that had to pay a large share of their insurance premiums with their company actually drop their own insurance of their company and go into these plans because they actually saved them more money. And I've seen smaller employees, so there are companies like Sedera is a good plan that does that. Um, there's different like, like Christian plans or religious plans that kind of bring those together. The value of those plans to me come from the fact that you are ne- negotiating the cash prices and getting better pricing overall. And that sounds counterintuitive because a lot of us think that the cash prices are a lot more and that the insurance prices are are less. In many cases, that's not true. And I'll just give you another example. So we had an employee of ours in Colorado that needed to do a surgery. And he went there. He didn't have to do this, but he was kind of worried about it. He went on the doctor's website and had a cash price for the procedure he was going to do. And he came and told us, he said, I'm going to be out. This is how much it is. Hope you're okay with it. I'm like, look, of course, you know, this is your plan. Go get the procedure done that you need to. And so we had this price in our hand. It was like $15,000 or something. A couple months into it, we get the bill. You know, our bills come through our insurance carrier. And we get this random charge for $45,000. I was like, what in the world is this $45,000? And we're trying to piece it together and trying to figure it out. And what we found out was it was that same procedure that on the website was $15,000. And then the Blue Cross rate was $45,000. And so we call Blue Cross and like, what gives? Like, why are you charging it three times more? And actually, sorry, we, we called the doctor's office. Like, why are you charging it three times more for this thing on there? I said, well, that's the negotiated price that Blue Cross has. And you're like, how in the world is that? more. But it and again we take hours like kind of going into this, but there is this incentive there for insurance carriers. That they're not incentivized to lower the cost down. They're more like money exchangers. Like with the ACA and Obamacare, when all that got passed, we said, said big bad insurance companies, we don't want you to keep all this money, so we're gonna limit you down to ten percent or fifteen or twenty or whatever that exact percentage of Obamacare had in there. And that sounds good, but when you think about it, would you rather have twenty percent of a hundred million or twenty percent of a billion? And the way that they increase their market share and their stock prices and everything, they need premiums. They need it to be bigger because they get to keep their cut of that amount there. And so there's not this incentive. So they want to build broad networks because every doctor to be in there and every hospital system in there. And so they don't have a lot of leverage to go to doctor's offices and drive down costs. They just want to be in the network there. And a lot of times if a doctor demands a higher price or a hospital demands a higher price, they'll give it to them because they want them in the network so they can keep their cut. And again, I'm simplifying things and we go in all these scenarios where that doesn't make sense, but there's this incentive for them to go higher. And then what's hard for me as an employer is when I realize that most of the brokers are commissioned as well. And so they, they get paid more as premiums go up. And it's just the opposite of what you want as an employer to have the person that's supposed to be helping you to be incentivized in the opposite direction. So I work a lot wow. about that and like making sure you have them on your side of the table and that they're, yeah. So anyways, I don't need to get into all of that, all that, that stuff, but just wanted to kind of answer your question about. No, it's, it's fascinating to me. It really is. Something you said earlier, though, I, I wanted to circle back on. You said that when I was asking you about how you bring employers together, you said you know, you've got different groups, LinkedIn, mm-hmm. Facebook, that kind of thing. And then you said they're all free. Is there a business component to this for you or will there be eventually or is this? Yes. And so the, so the business component for me, <laughs> no, I mean, at first I just get passionate. I just want to help everybody. But then, you know, I also need to feed my family. I have seven kids and so my family's big and need to put food on the table. So, and I've been trying to figure out different ways to monetize it. And for me, I was really focused on just value. So if I can bring tons of value to employers, I always feel comfortable carving out a small share of that for me. And I was just trying to work on what's the best way of doing that. And 
what my plan right now is to give all the information out for free so they can just kind of build their own plan that they could work with there. But if they want me to customize it to their company, they want me to look at their plan, then it would be a consulting fee. And so that's how I would monetize it. Okay. Okay. I mean, because I, you know, free is nice, but it's only scalable so far. I was curious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I'm working on is building out partners all across the nation of people that I trust, that I like and doing stuff. And then, you know, if I can find somebody, I don't have this right now, but if I find somebody in San Antonio that I really like and trust, and I vet them through all my processes and that's the people I would work with. And if I can help connect them, like, could I get a referral fee from those people? But it's trying to balance, trying to be independent, but then also like setting up your partners and being like, these are the people that I trust and here's the people that can help implement those solutions. So working through that, I mean, like every startup and every business, you kind of work through different models and see what, what sticks. And what I'm very confident about and very passionate about, though, is making sure that employers are educated and know what they're doing because we have to be honest, most of us don't. Like we just kind of write it off. We kind of give it to HR, let them handle it. But they're not analytical people, but we're yet they're negotiating these big contracts for all of our employees, and then they're using brokers that are incentivized in the wrong way, and it's just a bad scenario. That when I go look at a plan, I was looking at a plan just recently of a company that has a thousand employees, but their help plan is set up like a company that has fifty employees, and so there's all okay. these potential savings that they could take advantage of. And they just don't know, like they've just been using the same broker, and that same broker is getting paid a lot of money for selling that type of plan, and they just don't know what they don't know. Wow. Well. Yeah. We are starting to run close to the time, and I do have three questions I end every podcast with, so I want to get to those. But this has been really intriguing, and you know, a large part of our audience are earlier on in their careers, but, but we uh-huh. have a substantial number that are later on as well, just because individuals have been guests before and then the new guests and continued listening. So we do have people in management as well that listen to the show. Right. If someone wanted to find out more about trend breakers, uh, you mentioned you have a couple of sites. So where do they go first? Where would you want them to go? Uh, so you can go to my website. It's just trendbreakers.com or you can just search me on Facebook or LinkedIn under trend breakers. And the reason trend breakers is like, I'm just so sick of the rising trend that we just accept, you know, 5% increases every year. And so I'm just trying to bring together a group of people to break that trend. That's where that name came from. You can find me on LinkedIn at Steve Watson CPA as well. I'd love to connect with folks there and talk to chat. Beautiful. Okay. And I'm sorry, I can't resist. You said you have seven kids? I have seven kids. Yep. My my oldest is 15 now. I have six boys. So it's boy, 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 girl. So pretty girl at the end, she's two, and has all of this wrapped around her finger. So. <laughs> wow. Well, you, so, yeah, yeah, I'm very busy. So, again, I have the seven kids. I have my day job as a CFO in HR. I have this accounting practice for small businesses, and I'm doing trend breakers, and I'm just loving all of it. <laughs> well, with seven kids, that's probably two jobs too few, actually. So. <laughs> well, I, exactly. Now you know why I have three. i got a lot of, like, colleges to get ready for and stuff, so... So maybe I need to like make that consulting fee needs to be a little bit higher to make sure I can pay for all their food. Cause I mean, just teenage boys, man, those boys eat so much food. And now that they're out of school because all this pandemic going on, it's like, man, you guys eat a lot. <laughs> you need one of the distribution trucks just to pull up to your house. Exactly. Actually, you know, <laughs> it's a funny story. My wife was in the store again while we record this. It's during the big pandemic of COVID-19. So she's in the store getting her two things of milk and her two things of bread and filling up her cart and she had a bunch of people come up and talk about her hoarding and I think you're going a little overboard there. Actually, one person walked up and said, ma'am, like, how many kids do you have? And she's like, seven. And then he walked away kind of sheepishly and it's like, you don't realize that one loaf of bread is like one lunch. Like, 
If I divided the number of people in my household by what's in my cart and you divided the number of people in your household in the cart, I'd probably have less food than what you have. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I always quote or a little blurb from the guest to put in the front of the show, and I'd love to pick the one that what you just said. You don't realize one loaf of bread is one lunch. I won't choose that one. But <laughs> no, you can. <laughs> That's the reality. I mean, I pick when I make breakfast in the morning, like pancake recipes on how easy it is to like quadruple it. Because I mean, if it's like three quarters or like doing all the math, I'm like, I just need like one cup and one teaspoon, one tablespoon recipes. <laughs> That's too funny. Too funny. <laughs> well, I do end every show with the same three questions. It gives us a lot of consistency, so we should get to those. The first one's usually the easiest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? I thought through that. I think landing that first job. Hmm. There's just something about going through high school and college with this dream of getting in there and then going those, you know, it took me three months to kind of land that first job while I was doing account temps. And just to be able to kind of finalize that journey and say, Yes, like somebody wants to hire me for the skill set and it's going to set me on the, this career. I was trying to think about different phases of my life and there's been many happy moments in my life, but I just remember getting that notification and how happy I felt and going home and telling my spouse about it that I finally got that first job it was good times. Yeah, that is a key moment for sure. Well, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way. And the more you can tell us about it, of course, the better, because that's how we all learn. <laughs> Yeah, so one one of the lessons I, I learned earlier in my career. So again, I I was in Brazil. I was this new new accounting kind of director down there. But the one thing that we do a lot in, in accounting is we have to make estimates and we have to make accruals. And there's gray areas in accruals. Like there's no right answer on what your bad debt allowance should be or what these other things should be. And we were in this time where we were losing a bunch of money and we were building this new plant and there was a lot of pressure from our corporate office to get our earnings up. And I remember having all this pressure to like stretch those accruals. I'm like, we really don't need to like set the bad allowance, bad debt allowance that high or write off inventory or different things. And so I remember early in my career, I succumbed to a lot of that stuff, like kind of feeling that pressure, like, no, you're probably right or, or different things. And I remember six months later when we had that write off that bad debt because the customer just went bankrupt or, or whatever. I remember I was the one that took the flack six months later because mm. they're like, why didn't you keep up with the accounting standards? Like, why are you not doing this stuff? So it became accounting's problem versus six months earlier when it was more sales. Like, why are you selling it to the wrong person? Why do you keep selling it to this company? Or why are you producing this inventory we're not going to be able to sell? It was a big learning lesson for me of our job isn't to try and make the numbers look good or bad or anything. Like, it's just, it is what it is. And the more that we just present what it is, the better that the business can run and the better that we can report and the more that it's not your issue, like it's not accounting issue six months later, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's not out yet, but right before your episode, this episode airs, we have one on ethics. <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah, that's one of the challenges in the accounting profession. Yeah, we need to... Well, it's hard. I mean, it really, I mean, if you just think about this 26-year-old kid in a different country trying to make their way, having their boss come to them and saying, like, why are, like, no, that customer's going to pay or looking at the numbers and stuff. And you're like, I don't think so. But they're like, no, no, we can't do this. And they're pushing you to do it. And it's just pressure. You just have to recognize that pressure. But your job, again, is not to, like, make things look good or bad. It's just to report what they are. And the more that you can just, that's the other thing I kind of learned through that process of just being consistent. 
Like you're not moving things up and down or whatever. It's just like, this is what it is. We agreed on these standards and this process. And then you just report on them. Like, I'm not changing the standards just because we have a bad month. There you go. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? So my very first boss out of college, again, I'm, I keep going back to that first job, but <laughs> he had this distribution center. And I remember he did everything for his customers. I mean, he was setting up ways that they could get like small little business loans for them. He would call them, he would do all this stuff. And, you know, if you look at the accounting books, you're like, like, what's the return on this, this time and these investments and stuff. And I remember asking him, like, why do you do all this stuff? And he looked at me and he was this older gentleman. He's getting ready to retire. You know, he just kind of, he was getting, you know, just sold off his, his company, this publicly traded company. He looked at me and he says, it's very important for me that my customers hurt if they go somewhere else. And those are the words that he used. And I was like, wow, that's pretty strong, strong words. And he's like, no, I, I don't want to cause them pain or anything, but I want them to realize the value that I bring to them is so much that they're not going to get it from somebody else. And I just always incorporated that into my own profession with my clients that I get, that I want to be so valuable as a an accountant, as an analyst, as a CFO, that if they choose to let me go and bring somebody else on, that they're going to hurt, that they're going to miss me because of what I bring to the table. Mm, that is great advice. I've been giving out some similar advice, actually, on uh, just because of the situation we're going through with the coronavirus and potential layoffs. Yeah, people need to remember to bring value. Wow, that is strong. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you very much. Give us the website one more time. <laughs> it's Trend Breakers. So again, think of the trend of medical costs keep going up. We're trying to break it. So Trend Breakers, just one word, dot com. And again, you can search that on Facebook or LinkedIn and find me as well. Beautiful. Trendbreakers.com. Wonderful. Well, hey, thank you for spending so much time with me. I've learned a lot and I'm sure the audience has as well. You, you are a wealth of knowledge. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Well, that was my interview with Steve Watson. This was really an interesting interview and an educational interview for me. Some of the takeaways I personally have from this interview were, obviously, I learned a lot about health insurance, both during the show and actually after the show as well. One of the neatest things about being a podcast host is that you get to talk to the guests before and after the interviews also. And, and so sometimes I get a little free advice or free consulting, which is kind of cool. And then secondly, it was really obvious that Steve truly enjoys what he does and the service he's providing is very unique. I like it how he's been able to combine both his skill sets or, or two of his skill sets, if you will, to do something unique and that he's really passionate about. I'm really glad he made time for this interview. If you found value in this episode for yourself, like I mentioned earlier, please share it out on social media. We really do appreciate it. And also, if you don't mind, please check out our books on Amazon, 49 Tips for a Successful Accounting Career and 49 Tips for Working with a Headhunter. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. We'll see everyone next week. There's more to come.